Uh, good evening, everyone. The Lord be with you. Also with you. Please be seated. And let me pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come together to listen to your word this evening and to grow in loving you and loving each other. And we pray that you will help us by your spirit uh, to open your, your word to us and also to open our hearts to you. And now as I speak, please help me to speak clearly and faithfully. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Our friends, this evening we continue uh, with our series on the book of Ephesians, looking at uh, the passage that was read just now from chapter 2, verses 22 to verse 22 to chapter 6, verse 9, that begins on page 1166. And in the middle of your bulletin is a sermon guide that might be helpful with some space uh, for writing and also some quotation boxes uh, that might help you as we discuss this, uh, this uh, topic. And tonight we are going to talk about a very interesting subject, the um, Christ-centered family. Now we begin by looking at something that is very contemporary. A woman recently posted on a Christian website this question. She asked, what does the Bible really mean when it says wives should submit to their husbands? Now, I'm a capable, independent woman who is also a new Christian. And I don't like the idea. I don't like the idea. And some people at my church even say that it isn't relevant anymore. Now, this question reflects a prevalent global gender conflict, a picture of a gender conflict in the world as the world modernizes and as the world prospers and as the world opens up opportunities everywhere for women enabling them everywhere to live independently away from their male uh, family members. So, friends, what's with this word submit that creates such uh, uh, tension in the world? So I looked it up. The Cambridge Online Dictionary has this to say. Firstly, to give or offer something for a decision to be made by others. Oh, that doesn't sound so good, huh? And then it follows up with this, to allow another person or group to have power or authority over you or to accept something unwillingly. Collins' dictionary put it even more strongly. He said, if you submit to something, you unwillingly allow something to be done to you or you do what someone else wants, for example, because you are not powerful enough to resist that someone. Doesn't sound very good, too. Now, some of the more colloquial or informal dictionaries even say that to submit means to grin and just bear it, or to knuckle under, you know, to knuckle under. And in fact, one of those uh, uh, colloquial uh, dictionaries said that the antonym or the opposite of this word uh, submit is, guess what, to fight. Fancy that. So you, 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 you get this this sense of the, uh, the tension that this word uh, creates in the world. And when we apply it, and when we read it in the Bible, doesn't submit then means 
that in marriage, women should surrender their right to make decisions and hand over control to the husbands, however unwillingly. And this smacks of gender inequality, doesn't it? And like the lady who made the online query implied, isn't this a little bit out of date? Should belong to somewhere far, far in the past, few, uh, in the past history of the world. So, friends, what does the Bible really mean when it says wives should submit to husbands? Let's find out. Ephesians 22. Let me read that to you. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Well, there's no mistake here. The Bible is clear. It is an imperative, a command for the wife to be submissive to the husband. But not, however, that this submission is not to be given blindly or mechanically like a robot. She is commanded to do so in the same way that she willingly submits herself to her Lord, Jesus Christ himself, a Christ-centered submission. And the dignity, the, all, the, uh, the honour, uh, the correctness, the rightness of her actions to submit to her husband as commanded, is because of Christ himself. She does the submission. He, she submits to Christ knowing that Christ will never fail her. When she submits her independence to her, she knows it will be nurtured and catered for and, 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 and safe and protected, so to speak. Similarly, in submitting to her husband, she is confidently putting her faith and trust that the husband will not fail her. And I want to stress this. This does not call for her to submit to a human tyrant or monster, but willingly and humbly as to Christ her Lord. And Paul explains further in the following verse 23. The husband has headship over the wife. Now we may say that this is very unfair, right? But look at the top box in your sermon guide that I have put down there, uh, taken from Romans 13, verses 1 to 2. And this is what it says. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists and those who resist will incur judgment. Our friends, the reason we all have to submit to the local authorities is because they are instituted or appointed by God. Because all authority is ultimately from God himself, the sovereign of his creation. And similarly in marriage, if you look down with me to the second box, which I've taken a, uh, from which, in which I've put a quotation from 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3. And Paul says that, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. In this same way, God has instituted that the husband is the head of the wife in marriage. Now, our God is a God of order, and He has designed uh, different roles to be performed by different people. This does not mean that if wives were to be given headship over the husband, that it would not have worked. That is just how God has designed it in marriage for us. 
As we know, wives and husbands are co-equals before God, created in His image and His likeness. But they're designed differently, even anatomically different, to complement each other in their different roles to rule over the rest of God's creation. To give you a, a, a simple uh, illustration, it's like when I go to the doctors and he asks the nurse to draw blood from me. You'll never catch me putting, a thing, uh, putting the needle into my own skin and try to draw out blood. More than blood will come out, I guess. Different roles for different people. God has so ordained it. So such a relationship between husband and wife is based on the headship of Christ over his church, which he has saved for himself. It's a Christ-centered headship. And so as the church submits to Christ to be nurtured and cared for by Christ, so the wife submits to her husband, trusting in him to nurture and to care for her. Again, as I said, mentioned before, the command as to the Lord means that wives are not to obey blindly or mechanically like a robot. Her checkpoint is always this. Is my husband telling me to do what God forbids or stopping me from doing what he has commanded me to do? For example, does he tell me to falsify the family tax returns so that we can pay less tax? Well, if that's the case, then don't submit. And now the following verse 25 is addressed to husbands. And if you read it, you will see that it is the same thing as, the, as an imperative to the wife. This is an imperative, a command for husbands. And this time it is a command for husbands to love their wives. And this love is compared to Jesus' love for his church. Now it's a love that is not uh, responding to the church's love for him first. For as John says in 1 John 4, verse 19, we love because Christ first loved us. And Jesus' love sent him to earth to suffer and to die for such an um, unlovable, sinful and rebellious people like you and me. And so too, husbands, love your wife not because he submits to you. It's not a, a give and take sort of thing. Uh, do this for me and I do that for you. And not with the erotic love of the world, but with the self-sacrificial love that Christ, that sent Christ to the cross for his church. Now look uh, down with me to verse 26. And I see straight away there are three questions here for us. First, what does it mean Jesus sanctifying his church? Well, simply this, that Christ by his death has made the church holy and set it aside for himself. Secondly, what does it mean that the church is cleansed by the washing of water? Now, some Christians understand this to mean water baptism. I think this is uh, quite unlikely, as nowhere does the Bible speak of the church being baptized by water, only individual members. More likely, it is a picture of Christ and his church, his bride. And I look to Ezekiel 16, verses 8 to 14, uh, to help me. And it does this by describing how God prepares the bride for himself by bathing her with water and washing off her blood, anointing her with oil, dressing her in embroidered uh, uh, cloth and putting leather shoes on her feet and putting bracelets 
around her wrist and chains around her neck. And if you take this view, then like the cleansing water Yahweh used to prepare a bride for himself, the death of Jesus on the cross has sanctified his church, making her holy and beautiful and suitable as a bride for himself. Now, thirdly, what does it mean with the word? Now, the same Christians who think that water, baptism, uh, water means baptism take this to mean our baptismal vows. However, I tend to agree with others who think that the word refers to the gospel. You see, friends, remember how the church came into being uh, by the apostolic witness, eyewitness account and teaching of Jesus' life, Jesus' teaching, uh, Jesus' passion and death on the cross, and Jesus' resurrection and glorification and ascension up to heaven and how she continued to grow despite the early prohibition, the early persecution, even the death of countless thousands of its members that continue even until today in certain parts of the world. Friends, the church grew, and the church continues to grow in spite of all that, every single day, every single moment, due to the preaching of that same, same message of Jesus Christ. The word must mean the saving power of the gospel as Christ would gather for himself a, a people for himself, the church. So that as verse 27 says, on that last day, Jesus will present the church to himself as the perfect bride without wrinkle. And Paul quickly brings us back to husbands in verses 28 to 30. In summarizing this, Paul says, uh, Husbands, loving your wife is the same as loving yourself. You can't ignore your own body. If you're talking about a Chinese man, he will never be able to stay away from food, particularly if you are in Malaysia. And uh, you will always be taking care of yourself. You will never neglect it. Uh, those were the days when you walk into a supermarket and you see that the first floor is full of uh, fragrances and things for the ladies. Today, if you walk in, half the space is meant for men with a deep facial wash, their, 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 their colognes and their, their, their perfumes and so on and so forth. You, men, especially in Malaysia, will definitely take care of yourself. And not only take care of, self, of, of yourself, you will take very good care of it. Just as Christ takes good care of us collectively, all of us as his church. And in verse 31, let me read verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one, one flesh. This is taken uh, from our gospel reading from Mark 10, and uh, the Lord Jesus himself quoting from Genesis 2.24 when he was asked about divorces. And you can see this in the third box in your sermon guide. And here in our passage, Paul picks it up again, reminding husband and wife that in their God-given physical union, their sexual intimacy, if you like, they have become one flesh. Though they are different people and their roles are different, in marriage they are united as one flesh. And Paul sums up in verses 32 to 33, Husbands and wives are to base their marriage on the model 
set by the covenantal relationship of Christ and his church. And a marriage that is based on this model will show the husband's self-sacrificial love for his wife and his wife's reverence and respect for the husband's God-given leadership role. Now, not all of us are husbands and wives. So chapter 6 addresses all of us because all of us are children at some time uh, in our lives, right? So in verse 1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Another, and again, you can see another command, another imperative. But we should need to ask ourselves this. Just how important is, uh, is the obedience of children to their parents' instructions? Well, in his early epistle to the Romans, Paul ranks disobedience to parents uh, together with all the other unrighteousness when humanity fails to acknowledge God, even though they can see His glory in His creation. Look down at your guide to the fourth box that I put at the bottom of the page, taken from Romans 1, 28 to 30. Paul writes this, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, and so on and so forth. And I try to be helpful to you by putting uh, the key words there in italics, if you notice that, the second line from the bottom. Disobedient to parents. Disobedient to parents. You see? Disobedience to parents is equal to not being right with, with God. Paul groups them together with all these evil things that uh, these uh, people who this, uh, regard God do. Even when such deeds deserve death, if you read further on in Romans. Now, even here we can see a caution here. Because since the obedience of children is as if to the Lord, children must apply the same checkpoint uh, as wives with Husbands, are my parents telling me to do what God has forbidden or forbidding me to do what God has commanded me to do? And for example, if you are a child uh, living in a non-Christian family and your non-Christian father tells you not to go and worship God and uh, forbids you to associate with Christians, then I think it is the right thing not to obey him. And now to honouring parents in verses 2 to 3. Paul here refers to the fifth commandment. And God promises that the child's obedience and honouring of his or her parents will bring about a well-being uh, with God and with each other and will result in a good and long life on earth, uh, in a harmonious and mutually supportive and safe family and environment. Uh, because it is God who promises this, we trust that God will bring it to pass. Now to the duty of parents in verse 4. First, parents must never use this authority to provoke their kids, to use it arbitrarily or harshly or cruelly. We must always remember that there are individuals that are made wonderfully in the image and likeness of God. And secondly, parents are to teach them in the right way of the Lord. Come with me to the top box on the right-hand page of the guide on teaching children. And I took this quote from Deuteronomy 4, verse 9. 
Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your, your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. Uh, this was addressed to the uh, Israelite parents uh, who were the first generation to live uh, in the Exodus from Egypt. They were to teach their children the great miracles of God, uh, which they have personally seen with their own eyes. But what would happen when those parents didn't teach their children? Well, Judges 2 verse 10 tells us this, that in just one generation, God's people will no longer know Him and will chase after other gods. And we can no doubt see this even among our own family and friends. And recently, I have a very close family friend family member who came up to me, he was devastated that her, his child has chosen a way of life that he himself can never imagine she will take. And we must wonder why this is so. And we are reminded in Judges 2 that in just one generation, if you don't teach, if you don't lead your children, then they will forget about God and will chase after other gods. Thirdly, discipline them when it is necessary. And nowadays, I have to be very careful when I talk about this because disciplining children can send you to jail in certain parts of the world. And recently, we hear, we read about two uh, Malaysian couples uh, serving in uh, Northern Europe where you know, disciplining children uh, when they were disciplining children, uh, the police actually uh, persecuted them and, and prosecuted them and brought them to the courts. But you know, if you look down with me at what the Bible says in Proverbs 19:18 in our second box, it says that you should discipline your son, for there is hope. And I want to go further in Proverbs 13, verse 24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Proverbs 23, verse 13. Do not withhold discipline from a child. But when we exercise discipline, first of all, we must control ourselves. In other words, we must discipline ourselves before we discipline our children. And when we do so, we do it lovingly and sensibly. Now we move to Christ-centered servants and employers. Let me run quickly through the following verses 5 to 8. In verse 5, the fear and trembling is discerning Christ as the ultimate master over all of us. And verses 6 to 7 explain it further. If you're not sincere, maybe you can get away with it by fooling your human master, but not if it is the Lord with whom you are dealing with. Thus, obedience is to be sincere from the heart and most importantly, in the will of God. And again, servants must check, is it the will of God? What my master is telling me to do, is it the will of God to do so? For Christ-centered servants serve God rather than men. Uh, for example, if, he, if my employer tells me to do something illegal, I would not do it because that will be against the will of God. And in verse 8, as with the promise to, serve, to children, uh, servants are assured that each good deed carried out in the Lord through trust in His Word will be rewarded when He comes again. 
And we read this actually in Matthew 16, verse 27. Jesus, our Lord, affirms this himself when he said that for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. And finally, the instruction to employers. This is in our last verse, verse 9. Masters, do, not, uh, do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality, partiality with them. Masters are reminded obedience doesn't make servants inferior to you. They deserve the same treatment and respect that you are receiving from them, sincere treatment and service. Harsh words and threats may get superficial response from them now, not hard service. But above all, know that Christ is master of both servant and master, and there is no partiality with God. An example of this we can see in our last box that is taken from Job 31. And Job said this, If I have rejected the cause of my main servant or my maid servant when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up, when he makes inquiry? What shall I answer him? Did not he who met me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? And so as we conclude, we find that this passage not only touches on the role of wives to husbands, but also to the various roles of each household member. Our friends, the Christian family is one where each member performs his or her God-given role and to perform it responsibly, humbly, and lovingly. And in the wider context, as well as in the home, as employees, we are to obey all godly instructions from our bosses, and we are to work faithfully from the heart, and not just to please the eyes of those who are watching us. And if we are employers, we are to respect and to honour our workers, and we are not to force them or threaten them, or to require them to do unlawful or ungodly things. And children, uh, if we are children, we are to obey our parents in all things godly, remembering that our Lord himself obeyed his Father even unto death, death on the cross to save us. But if our parents tell us to do something ungodly that is against the will of God, then we are not to obey. Parents are not to exercise their God-given authority unkindly or harshly or cruelly, Having said that, parents are not to forget to teach and when necessary to discipline their children because lack of this will lead the children to forget about God in just one generation and they will chase after other things. But as we discipline, as we teach our children, we are to do this in the most loving and encouraging way possible so that these children will grow up in a safe and nurturing uh, environment to reach their full potential that God has blessed them with. Husband and wives are to treat each other as Christ treats his church and as the church submits to him as her head. Be loving as Christ is loving. Be sacrificial as Christ himself is sacrificial. As a Christ-centered family, we seek to complement each other's weakness and to humbly accept each other's assistance when they help us in our weakness. But above all, we are to seek to please God and not man.
Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your word to us today. And we pray that you please guide and help us in your spirit to live as worthy members of your church, reminding us always to love you and each other as you have loved us in your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please stand, and we will sing the canticle, the Nunc Dimittis, or the Song of Simeon, to be found on page 10 of the Yellow Booklet. Lord, now let your servant go in peace.